Part of the problem with doing a weekly podcast is that there are weeks where so much happens that I can hardly sort it all out, and other weeks where I'm struggling to find something that I want to talk about that resonates with what is happening in the world. It also almost always happens that I will sit down to begin writing on one topic, and the news cycle will produce some other major story that gets everyone talking about that thing, and naturally, I want to jump in with my commentary on that instead of what I had been writing on up to that time. But my commitment for doing this podcast is not to simply give flippant commentary on daily events. I have Facebook and Twitter for that. But rather, to provoke deeper intellectual thought on what those events mean for our liberty. Hopefully, I am succeeding on fulfilling that commitment, as I hope to continue to fulfill it as we embark on another hazardous conversation. Trigger warning disclaimer. Hazardous Conversations pushes rhetorical boundaries for acceptable political discourse. Listening to this program could have the uncomfortable side effect of provoking deep intellectual inquiry into foundational principles of liberty. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so this episode is not going to just be a hazardous conversation, but also a hazardous recording session. We got a series of surprise thunderstorms rolling through, so you may hear that in the background. I'm also recording while my children are awake, and we added a new puppy to the family this week. So the potential for unintended sound effects is great right now. (laughs) Hopefully I can record around it. Now, Thomas Jefferson once wrote that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing. Now, He wrote that in 1787 in reference to Shays Rebellion in Massachusetts, urging leniency for the participants in that minor uprising. And by the way, if you've never taken the time to read some of the things that Samuel Adams had to say about Shays, I highly encourage you to do so. I mean, you have one of the icons of the revolution and independence wanting to mete out the most severe punishment against men who took actions that Adams himself took only 11 years prior. However, Adams does articulate a few things that he believes sets the American Rebellion apart from Shays. By the way, Shays' Rebellion is named after one of the participants, Daniel Shays, spelled S-H-A-Y-S. People get this consistently wrong and think it is S-H-A-Y, and that we say Shays in the possessive sense, but no, his name is Shays. I mean, I suppose we could overpronounce it and say Shays's Rebellion, but I'm not going to do that. It's simply Shays' Rebellion, but I digress. Now, the first distinction that Adams made is that the form of government that Shays rebelled against is wholly different. In 1776, the rebellion was against a tyrannical monarch, not an elected republic. Adams argued that, quote, In monarchies, the crime of treason and rebellion may admit of being pardoned or lightly punished. But the man who dares rebel against the laws of a republic ought to suffer death. See, for Adams, this distinction was a critical one philosophically. After all, in the republic that they had just created, and indeed within the state of Massachusetts, you had what Adams referred to as a civil society of men, working together for mutual good, not a despotic monarchy. In the latter, you had to appeal to the mercy of a single individual for all things, while in the former, you worked cooperatively through the political process. 
The second distinction that Adams saw was the seemingly singular nature of Shay's grievances. Unlike the Revolution, where a myriad of issues had arisen and played out over the, at least the 15 years prior to the shot heard around the world, Shay's rebellion was a rather hasty and reactionary response to what was essentially a single issue. And as Adams saw it, such a minor issue was to be resolved within the political institutions created by the people, not through the force of arms. Now, Adams' reasoning in this regard is fundamentally correct. However, what he fails to take into account is that, from Shay's perspective, these institutions had already failed. Him. And he therefore had only one option left, invoking the principles outlined in the Declaration of Independence, come what may. See, the farmers that largely made up the rebellious forces had already tried peaceful means of redress for their grievances, only to see those efforts rebuffed and fail at the hands of corrupt legislators and debtors' courts. Till then, the state of Massachusetts had already become no better than the British they had rebelled against only a decade earlier. So while Adams' reasoning differentiating rebellion against a king versus a republic was fundamentally sound, it is entirely meaningless if the people of that republic no longer trust the institutions which make it up. Is that where we are getting to now? Have we already got there? This is not an easy question to answer, and even a somewhat dangerous question to ask, because entertaining it could lead us to conclusions that we may not like let alone even agree upon. And I think that depending upon where you currently live in your day-to-day -day lives, your answer may vary, possibly even drastically so. But I think that wherever you are, it's getting harder and harder to look around at how things are going and conclude that things are running as they should. As they should. Now that's an interesting statement. If something isn't running as it should... We acknowledge two things simultaneously. First, that something is wrong that needs to be fixed. And second, that there is some notion of ideal which we will hopefully return whatever is broken to. Looking around to see the first part is not too difficult. In theological terms, we call this the natural knowledge of God. It is that almost inherent sense that all humans have that there is something more than just this life for existence. Even atheists have this instinctual sense, though they attempt to attribute it to anything but a deity. Now, in just about everything that has gone wrong, admitting that it has indeed gone wrong is the first step. But it is just a first step. If we leave it there, we are little more than annoying complainers. We must resolve ourselves to also fixing whatever is wrong, and to do that, we must go to the second part of the as-they-should problem and see what ideal looks like for the given thing. And this is really where the schism between a constructionalism or originalism versus a living document view of the Constitution comes from. It is the difference between asking, how should this work, versus how can we make this work the way we think it should. The former recognizes an intent and purpose in creating the thing, whereas the latter wants to constantly redefine the thing to fit a new moment-by-moment -moment intent. 
So, going back to the question of whether our societal institutions are failing us, I think we will find a lot of agreement on the first part of the question. Left and right look at how things are and scream that something is wrong. Where we sharply divide is in the second part of the question. What is the ideal that we should strive to correct too? As an originalist, I obviously believe that our correction needs to be back to an original intent interpretation of the Constitution. It is very, very difficult to argue against the idea that well over 90% of the problems we face today are directly tied to government operating outside of the constraints of that document. And some of this has been because courts have rendered horrible and incoherent rulings which have outright shredded the Constitution, while a lot more has been because Congress has been allowed to pass legislative act after legislative act which blatantly exceeds its own authority. And the people have been simply too fickle and passive in response, or they've been outright ignorant of it happening at all. And then, on top of all that, there is the bureaucratic administrative state, which wholly makes up and operates under rules and regulations which the people have no say in whatsoever, not directly or through their elected representatives. And that right there is a good reason why attempts to fix any of this often stall out and fail. The beast that we face is a multi-headed hydra that continues to survive no matter how many heads you cut off or how deeply you wound it. I don't even think that Donald Trump, though he saw the problem for what it is, fully appreciated or anticipated the depth of the swamp he promised to drain. That's not a criticism of the president, just an objective observation, one that I believe more and more of us are waking up to. We are losing faith that the problems we see can be fixed in place, and this is causing many of us to entertain more extreme measures to affect the cure. And by the way, stating that does not make us extremists. It makes us Americans. Now, Jefferson's solution, at least in theory, was that the people should shake up and scare their government from time to time. There's a great quote that gets circulated fairly regularly, which has been attributed to a couple different founding fathers, including Jefferson. It says, When government fears the people, there is liberty. When the people fear the government, there is tyranny. Some give that line to Sam Adams or Thomas Paine, but both of which could easily have said it. But who really said it is not known for sure, and it does fit nicely with the Jefferson quote we started this episode with, the idea of both being that government should fear its own citizens. How much should they fear us? Well, if we truly believe what it says in the Declaration of Independence, they ought to fear us quite a lot. And that is precisely what Shays and the farmers that he helped to lead did, in fact, believe. And it is a belief that, at least in part, led to the call for the 1787 convention that would produce the federal constitution. Now, Jefferson opposed the constitution, primarily because he foresaw, correctly as it turns out, the largesse and corruption that it could lead to. And despite the eloquence of the arguments made by Hamilton, Jay, and Madison to the contrary, nearly every single worry of the so-called anti-federalists have been realized. Mind you, it did not happen overnight. 
It has taken over 234 years to get where we are today. But looking around at all of the bloat, all the regulation, all the infringements on our liberty, and I do not believe that any honest person with even a modicum of historical understanding would say that our nation is functioning as intended. Notice, I didn't say as designed. I actually do believe that it is functioning as designed. Just as an automobile that careens off of a cliff is, right up to the moment the wheels leave the pavement, functioning as designed. It is not a fault of machinery, but rather the operation of it. I mean, you can have a mechanism that is the highest performing, highest efficiency, highest, most advanced thing there is. And when you have nimrods operating it, it will fail to perform as intended, and will eventually fail to work altogether. Of course, I look around today and see far more than mere incompetence ruining things. I see deliberate efforts to literally destroy the United States of America. Efforts by the party to amass more and more power and control over every single aspect of our lives, while at the same time destroying, or attempting to destroy, every single institution that society relies upon to function. Idiotic policies that cause oil tankers to traverse all the way through the United States on rail to get to Mexico or Canada in order to offload or onload to cargo ships because, you know, climate change. Outright lies about how a ruling from the Supreme Court comports with the Constitution and what its effects are on existing law. And all of this is part and parcel to the combined effort to shred the Constitution. And when I say shred, I don't just mean to go against or go outside of the Constitution. I also mean they purposefully distort and lie about what the Constitution actually says and means. They have to. It's massively critical to their overall goal of getting rid of it. See, if all they do is ignore it, there remains a seed of being able to restore it. However, by perverting it, by constantly claiming that it says things which it does not say, or means things which are objectively false, they whittle and wear down our core belief in the document itself. It causes people to doubt the design of the machine itself rather than face the stupidity of the operators. And in fact, it causes them to falsely believe that the stupidity of the operators is due somehow to a flaw in the design of the machine. They've been doing this for decades, with the supposedly sophisticated modes of academic thinking called deconstructionism. And it is working. So much so that finding and returning to some sort of, quote, common ground when it comes to what this country is and what it was founded to be and how it is supposed to work is becoming nearly impossible. In other words, we are slipping from a high-trust society to a low-trust society where faith in the systems and institutions that form our foundation is becoming decayed beyond repair. So what do we do when, like Daniel Shays, we lose faith in our ability to find redress in our courts, our legislature, or executive agencies? <laughs> well, the Declaration of Independence tells us what we can do, but it has little to say on when it is proper to do it. And I know we've covered this before, but it bears repeating. 
One of the most miraculous parts of the American Revolution is the degree to which the people of the colonies came to agree that the time had come. And even then, there was not universal agreement. And that brings me to the point of this episode. As I mentioned earlier, one of the key distinctions between Shays and America's rebellions is the rapidity with which each came about. As John Adams said about the Revolutionary War, quote, That was no part of the Revolution. It was only an effect and consequence of it. The Revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was affected from 1760 to 1775, in the course of 15 years before a drop of blood was shed at Lexington. That is what the farmers in Shays Rebellion wholly lacked, a solid philosophy and erudition of their cause, principles that were tried, tested, and true, and which were applicable to every human being, not merely the passionate situational grumblings of a disaffected people. The participants in Shays Rebellion were spurred by a righteous scorn, but they wholly lacked a cogent justification for their methods. They had not patiently suffered a long train of abuses before taking up arms, but rather they acted rashly and somewhat aimlessly. And most importantly, they acted too much in isolation, failing to rally others to their cause precisely because they lacked that coherent argument for why they were acting. So, how do we compare today? Well, I believe that we have a very righteous scorn for the corruption that exists around us, and I actually believe that unlike Shays, we have been patient in our sufferings for far too long. But just as with Shays, we have failed to develop a deep philosophy of our grievances. Oh sure, we have lots of voices out there drumming the repeated epigrams of we have to return to the Constitution, but we remain, largely, a diverse and heterogeneous group beyond that. We have to find ways of unifying. We have to find ways of organizing. We have to find ways to put into writing some sort of coherent, organized, and shared philosophy of how we want to fix things. If we don't, if we simply remain disconnected in angry little cells, then we may end up erring the way Shays did by invoking the action of the Declaration minus the clear, logical, and convincing substance found in the rest of the document. Because let us be clear, if at once we invoke the action of the Declaration, we will have declared the function of the Constitution to be dead. And even if our intent is to resurrect it, history has shown that once begun, rebellions rarely achieve the idealistic causes from which they spring. We may be irrevocably on that path already, but whether we are or not, in no way alters our responsibility to participate in that journey. Indeed, the very outcome of that journey may depend on what actions any one of us chooses to take. And remember, choosing to not act is still choosing to act. Whether by omission or commission, we all must choose. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd invite you to like it, rate it, 
Leave a comment if you so desire. Maybe even follow or subscribe to the podcast. But most helpful would be is if you would share the podcast with others. It is available on all of the major podcasting apps. Spotify, Amazon, Podbean, Pandora, Google, and others. And you can listen without any of those if you so choose at hazardousliberty.com backslash podcast. So, until our next conversation, God be with you all in all that you do. And remember, keep the faith and keep up the fight.